Let's go. So glad to be here. Are you guys ready for church? Amen. It's a special Sunday. It's what they call Palm Sunday. So we're going to talk about some things that help, underst- help us understand how Jesus has captured our hearts. Can I get an amen? amen? But before we go into that, can we just welcome our online viewers with a round of applause? And if you're on Facebook Live, thank you so much for tuning in. Stick around. I pray it blesses you in Jesus' name. So the title of, of today's talk is called Jesus Didn't Die for Christians. Tell that person next to you, do you know who he died for? And if you don't know me, I tend to be spontaneous at times. Sometimes that translates to dangerous. <laughs> but what I want to say is, is that Jesus didn't pay a debt for Christians. He paid a debt for humans. And so the big idea this morning is that Christianity is not about exclusivity. That is not what God had in mind when he sent Jesus, his most valuable possession. So it's not about us. It's about the people that still aren't here. Amen? It's a story. And if you don't know me, I'm Pastor Chris. By the way, I pastor the... the, uh, In the the previous service, I said, I'm Pastor Chris. I uh, campus the pastor in Framingham. So I might as well start with confession. But I'll preach that. But I'm the campus pastor of the Framingham campus, and just if you don't know me, that's who I am. Today, uh, I want to talk about, on this Palm Sunday, something that is very serious in our faith. And I know you know the story, you've read it probably, you've maybe watched movies or dramatizations or reenactments, reenactments but my question to you is, is not if you know the story, but do you remember the story? Do you remember the details of this story? When I think of the crucifixion, I see the death of Jesus as God saying to us, I still want you. And when I see the resurrection, I see God yelling into hell, you can't have them. And so this is a story about the details that help us go back to what the Bible calls the first love. What's interesting about the first love, and it's in the book of Revelation, it talks about how there was a church and a letter was written to that church. And in this book, these letters are not only expressions to that local church at the time, but they were also timeless teachings for us today. And so I want you to focus on the first love, but under the correct interpretation, because a lot of us would think and believe that going back to a first love means to a moment where you fell in love with God. But the verse says first love, and we understand that the Bible says that God loved us first. I want you to go back to a place not when you fell in love with God, but let's go back together 2,000 years ago and look at a picture where God fell in love with us. If you're reading along, I want to show you what the eagle-eyed prophet showed us 700 years. And this is a foreshadowing of what happened in Exodus chapter 12. But if you would follow the story, there was actually an accuracy in the prophet Isaiah, the eagle-eyed prophet. And he described the four wounds of the Son of God. Now, this is God making himself creation because he loved us that much. And when he did that, he gave this prophet a bird's eye view 
700 years before. And we're going to walk through this story and see it as it unfolds in one of the Gospels in Matthew chapter 26. It's in your worship guide. So let's read along. But he was wounded. He who? Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, the King of the Jews and of this world. He was wounded. I like the NIV version. It says he was pierced. Everybody say spear for our transgressions. He was bruised. I like another version that says there was, he was crushed. Everybody say the nails. For our inequities, the punishment or the chastisement of our peace. Everybody say crown of thorns brought us peace and it was upon him. And by his stripes, everybody say whip, we are healed. Now, what I like about this verse, and many of us use it when we pray over people because of this last part, and it says that it's because of his stripes. It was actually 39 stripes on the backside of Jesus. It says not that we will be healed or we were healed. What you want to pay attention to it is that this verb is present tense. It means that you are healed now. You can be healed in this moment, and all you have to do is believe. And although it was written 700 years before it happened, it is not only as valid then as it is now, but it will always be valid and powerful in the future because Jesus still heals. Can I get an amen? So Jesus didn't die for Christians. He died for more than that. And so we cannot be selfish in our faith because if we were to look at our lives and then picture our lives without God in it, what is that life really like? If you were to do a recap highlight of the years of life that you were given and you were to go back into those scenes and withdraw the picture and the favor and the protection of God, what would your life really be like? I don't know, but as you think of it, there are people that are living that kind of life without him now. And so we cannot be selfish Christians. We must share his story. Can I get an amen? amen. Our, our, our scene picks up, and it's in the worship guides. It's Matthew chapter 26. And you'll see that Jesus on this night, he goes to a place where he usually went to. And so he wasn't hiding he wasn't a criminal running to the backside of the desert. He was not a fugitive. He went to a place with his disciples to pray, and it was the Garden of Gethsemane. That word means that it was a vineyard of olives pressed to extract the oil. That's the expression of that name. And wasn't it also a reality because our Jesus would be crushed so that the essence would come out and cure humanity? In the Garden of Gethsemane, he's praying with his disciples and he calls the inner core and they can't pray with him. And he's going through anxiety because he is getting more information and he knows that there is a cup, that there is, that there is a suffering, that there is a moment of pain that is about to undergo his ministry. He's, he's, he's praying to God and he's going through such strife and such emotional stress 
that some that the gospel says in one of the narrative that he actually sweated blood through his skin. And in this moment, he prays to God and he's asking, Lord, can you pass this cup from me? But I believe as the sentence continues, he says that therefore not my will be done, but your will be done. And I think that what changed the prayer was not that he was faithful to the mission. It was that he was lovingly faithful to us because he knew we would not be enough. And so he had to go forward. And here come the lights, the tortures, and and the torches, and the weapons. It was a a detachment of Roman soldiers. And I want to pick up the scene right here where it says that one of his disciples is leading the people that are about to arrest him. And a lot of people look at Judas and they only focus on the fact that he was the one that betrayed Jesus. And in fact, that is accurate. But there are some inaccuracies about the life and who he really was to Jesus. If you study Judas, he was coming to meet Jesus. And the idea was that he would kiss Jesus because Jesus looked so much like his disciples that they needed to kiss him to identify him so that they would know who the right person was. Look at that. How you multiply leadership is so powerful that they didn't know who was the leader. And so Judas is coming. And the Bible says that going at once to Jesus, Judas said, greetings, rabbi or teacher or master in other versions, and kissed him. And this was the kiss of betrayal. Jesus replied, do what you came for, friend. I like the King James version that says, friend, why have you come? I know that a lot of times when we look at our life through the heroes and the hall of fame and the, and, and, and the lens of what the Bible has to offer in terms of characters that did much for God, we would say, well, I see my story in, in Goliath or in King David or, with, or, or what some of these heroes of faith did. And, and I see myself in Moses and I can see myself in Peter. But if we were really honest, and I am, when I really look at the Bible, I find myself not so much in the heroes and in the accolades. I a lot of times find myself in the personality of Judas because in the same way that he is betrayed, Jesus. You know what? Sometimes I feel like I betray Jesus too. And I want to give you this word because maybe you're like me and you know you're not perfect. I want you to know that Jesus still calls you friend. He doesn't see Judas as a betrayer. He sees him as a friend. If you were to study the, 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 the life of the disciples, there was someone in the group that was a money manager. There was someone that had an experience. In fact, we are reading the narrative of this disciple, which was Matthew, the tax collector. So it made me think, why did Jesus give something of trust, the opportunity to manage money? I mean, where would you put your money in a place that you trust? And look at where Jesus put his money he was the money manager he gave us he gave the money and the trust to Judas and so when I see Jesus calling him friend I do not believe that Jesus was a hypocrite I truly believe that in this moment not only is he on his way to change the course of humanity but he's also changing the context of relationship because a lot of people would say that you're my friend if you're loyal to me you're my friend if you do this for me I'm in relationship 
relationship with you if you for me, if you for me, and you're my friend if you for me. But look at Jesus, and he says, he's my friend because of what I do for him, not what he does for me. He's redefining what relationship really is. He's starting his journey to death, and he's trying to save people along the way. Rabbi, and he kisses him. I want you to know that if you feel like you've betrayed Jesus with your attitude or with things that you haven't done, or maybe you have done some things or you've thought some things or decisions that you make, I want you to know that Jesus will always call you a friend. I think the second reason why he calls Jesus a friend is because anyone that furthers the plan of God in your life is no enemy. I believe that the worst years of your life are the best years of your life. You don't know it yet. I believe that what you're struggling with right now, some of the pain, some of the inconsistencies, that will be your best friend because you know what? That will push you to God. That will get you closer to God. So be careful how you view your enemies. They may be your best friends. I love the story, but it doesn't stop here. What we understand is that Jesus is about to go on a mission, and his mission is to endure the cross. His mission is to now go on a trip, and on this trip, he is going to suffer four major wounds. They arrest him as if he was a criminal, as if he was hiding. Was Jesus hiding? He was not. And they bind him up, and the mistreatment begins here. There were many trials, and they find him innocent, but that didn't keep them from humiliating him in every point and in every station that leads up to the crucifixion story. When they bring him into the uh, leaders, some were Herod, some were an Ananias, other was Alexander and, and, and Pilate, and, and these leaders, they, they would humiliate Jesus. And when they were bringing him in to speak, he was very silent for a lot of the questionings. And they would, they would beat him. They would punch him in the face. And the Bible accounts that they would rip his beard from his face. Because in Jewish culture, the beard was a sign of honor. And so they wanted to take the honor off of his face face. He was found innocent, but still we find Jesus now condemned, and we'll visit this in a little bit, as to how and why he was condemned. But then Pilate has the idea of having him whipped, and here is the first wound of the Son of God, because the whip is what brought us the healing. There is a whip that was used by these professional experts, and it was a Roman torture tool. It was called in Latin the azohagia, and in English we call it the cat of nine tails. These were nine strips of leather, and at the ends they would have metal balls and glass or things that would be sharp that had the ability to catch sound flesh so that it would rip the skin and the meat off of the backside of the prisoners. The Roman 
Christians knew what they were doing because if you underwent this punishment, you would be defeated in your rebellion. And so as the history relates and accounts the story, they would dip the cat of nine tails in dirty water. And they wouldn't just whip it as you see in the movies. There have been some great reenactments and some descriptions, but nothing will compare to the actual truth of what happened to him that day. And it would require two hands. And they would slice the backside of Jesus. It was 39 whips times nine strips. And the goal was to sever the trapezoid muscle so that when they got to the cross, they couldn't lift themselves up and they would die of asphyxiation or lack of their ability to breathe. It was 13 on the left. And forgive me for being graphic, but you must understand exactly what Jesus has done for you. And it was 13 on the right, and it was 13 down the middle of the spine to the point where the bones were showing. And it was only 39 whips because usually, according to their math, if they underwent one more, they would die. By his stripes, we are healed. Can I get an amen? In fact, it says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, And forgive me if I am emotional. I am not trying to entertain you or move you emotionally. It's because I see myself in the story. He himself bore our sins. In his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed. Next time you catch a fever, next time you end in the ER... Do not rely on the, medic, on the medicine first. Rely on the stripes first because Jesus still heals humanity. It would continue. After they created this gruesome scenario and his body was mutilated from the backside, The guards brought him into what's called the praetorium, which is kind of like the locker room of the guards. And there they mocked him and they put the crown of thorns. They, They made up, they welded together. Some scholars believe that they were between two to four inches long. And they would put it on Jesus, his head, and they asked him if wasn't he the king of the Jews and they threw a scarlet or purple garment depending on the depth of the color they really resonate and they put it over the stripes and it and it seeped into the skin of Jesus and they took sticks and they beat the crown of thorns on the so-called king or the so-called messiah and they spit on him and they mocked him and they humiliated him and as the as the as the, as the crown went into his head and, and, and these thorns pierced his skull, there would be a blood flow that would peripherate the skull and it would create an incredible headache and a deep sense of, of migraine pain. And this is why I know and we can see, and it says this in John 14, 27, that he, he says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give you as the world gives because he's giving us our peace as he is losing his. 
Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. I know some of us suffer from mental pain, anxiety, and depression. Let me tell you that you do not have to go through that yourself. There is something greater than depression. There is something greater than anxiety. There is something greater than your emotions. And it was one when Jesus wore that crown and he gave you peace. And this moment, it was the next day, they would rip the same robe off of his skin. And 300 plus wounds were instantaneously opened to fresh flesh. And they would put a cross on his ripped shoulder blades. And they asked him to walk down the famous Via Dolorosa, which means pathway of pain. And it was too much for any man to bear. How did Jesus, how was he able to do that? The Bible says that he stopped along the way and he spoke to some mothers. And basically what he was saying is, if people can be this cruel in times of peace, imagine what's to come. And later the Bible would say, because he was being whipped and pushed and mocked, continuously as he was on his way to Golgotha, Skull Mountain. It's interesting that this is the same place that Mount Moria was founded. It was a different hill of Mount Moria where Abraham sacrificed, was supposed to sacrifice Isaac, but God stopped him because he knew that now Abraham loved him. But in this moment, God does not stop Jesus from going to the cross because he wanted to put on full display how much he loved us. And he falls on the way because the cross was too heavy. And the Roman guards, they grab this man who's called Simon of Cyrene. It's a place in, in, in Ethiopia, uh, historians say. And they say, you carry the cross for him then. And they begin whipping him also to carry the cross that now Jesus has no strength to bear. And this is a message for us today, church. When you get to moments on your journey in your life where you feel like it is too heavy and you cannot go any further, there will always be a Simon of Cyrene that will show up in your life to carry what is too heavy for you. And he's called the Holy Spirit of God. The nails come next. They bring him to Skull Mountain. And this was a cross that was not meant for Jesus. Some say, well, it was meant for Barabbas. No, it was meant for us. And because he was too small for the frame, they pulled his arms wide enough for the socket to be removed from the shoulder. They would bend the knee just slightly. And they would tie, and nine-inch spikes would go through the feet and through what the Romans at the time called the hand, which was from the tip of the fingers to the edge of the elbow. Precisely, it was the wrist area where you could grab bones that would hold him to the cross. But it wasn't the nails that held him there. It wasn't the security detachment. It wasn't the Roman soldiers. It was his enduring love for us. And the hammer came down on the nails, and blood was shed, and this brought us our cleansing. 
Hands speak about the things that we do that we're not proud of. I want you to know that your past is erased by the blood of Jesus. And it cannot determine your future because his nails and his blood cleansed us. They raised the cross. Where are the disciples? They are nowhere to be found except for one. John, the closest to Jesus. And his mother and bystanders and watchers and guards. And in this moment, Jesus hangs for about six hours and he says many things on the cross, all of which sums up to this, it is finished. People say that Jesus died on the cross, but that's not accurate. Up until this moment, death would come in the final minutes and it was used to bringing people that were evil and full of sin and wrongdoings, and therefore it had power to withdraw the spirit from the body. But here is a moment in time where death finds a person that has no sin. And the psalmist says, O death, where is your sting? Death had no power over Jesus. This is why in this moment, Jesus has to now commission and send his spirit to the Father. Jesus did not die on the cross. Jesus gave himself up on the cross. The Bible says that the skies were dark and there was an earthquake. And even to the people that were used to doing this, it was too much. There was a feast coming, and so they needed to hurry up the process. And so they would take the spear, and they would level it on the backside of the knees, and they would snap the knees of the people that were being crucified. The spear is what brought us a future. To the people to the left and the right, their knees are snapped. But when they get to Jesus, they see that he's apparently already dead. But they say, go ahead and make sure. And so they take the spear and they thrust it between the rib cage. And water and blood comes out, the gospel says. And people that are in the field of medicine know that water and blood will only come out if the heart has been wounded. The spear went under the rib and it punctured the heart of Jesus. Literally, Jesus died with a broken heart. <sighs> but wait a minute. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, it says, Therefore, if anyone in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. Good Friday was good for us, but it was not good for him. But through the spear, the final wound, of Jesus, we have a future. Wait a minute. Wasn't Jesus innocent? How did he get here? It was six trials, false witnesses, and evidence couldn't hold true. How was he then condemned? What was he guilty of? Let's cue the video and find the exact moment where he's condemned. 
Watch this. Ke an eshalak yeshuansaret. Amarlana en ant meshiakha bar elachachai. was innocent on all accounts. They didn't condemn him. He condemned himself because he could not be silent about who he was. They asked him, are you the son of God? And he says, I am. They asked him in another trial, are you the Messiah? He says, you are right in saying that I am. Before Pilate, he was asked, are you the king of the Jews? And he says, you are right to say that I am a king, but my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus knew that this would be the only thing that they could condemn him on. And so he cannot be silent about who he is. He cannot back down about what he represents. He cannot stand silently before people and not tell and not share who he really is. And when he says, I am, in all of the accounts prior, when God in the Bible says, I am, you'll find it in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14 when Moses is trying to find out who should I say sent me to Pharaoh God tells Moses to say tell them that I am meaning Yahweh meaning the beginning and the end the all-sufficient all-powerful God and even before his arrest when he's in the garden of Gethsemane they come to arrest him and and he says who are you looking for and they say Jesus of of Jesus we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth and he says I am he and the Bible relates that everybody falls back on their backs because he is revealing who he is in God and all power. But in this moment, he makes himself destitute and empty of glory. And he says, I am. And if Jesus could not be silent about who he was, we cannot be silent about who we are. So in this moment, where you have compelling information and conviction of the heart, when you came into, in, into this auditorium, there was an Easter invite on your seat. I want you to grab it right now. And maybe, Joey, if you could grab one for me. We've been doing this all week. 
I've been placing names of the people that I know they need God. And I wrote down four names, my neighbor, people that I consistently meet in, in coffee shops. And uh, recently, I had put two names down, and I had been praying for them. Because I know that Jesus didn't die for Christians. Can I get an amen? amen. And so I prayed over them, and, and I reached out to them, and I didn't have much of an answer. But then, all of a sudden, I met them at a coffee shop. And before I could say anything, he came up to me and said, Man, we've been meaning to go to church the past three Sundays, but it just never happened. But on Easter, we'll be there, because where else am I going to go? When you pray for people, something goes before you. And you're not, your job isn't to convince them to come to know God. Your job is just to open the door, because God is already drawing them when you pray. And to my surprise, they, they didn't just say, I'm coming. They said, and pastor, we got married. And I'm like, they're Starbucks pastor, I guess. And, and they said, I, I, I got married. Uh, we got married uh, legally uh, a couple months ago, and we would love it if you would do our ceremony next year. Wow. What's one name that needs to be here next Sunday? If you have a pen, write that name down right now. Go ahead. If you truly understand what Jesus has done for you, if you need a pen, raise your hand. I'll wait. If you're watching me on Facebook, tag that person. Share this invite. This is where we take an immediate step so that we can, in this moment, have someone that we can share with. There is hope for humanity as long as we share what happened. Jesus risked it all by owning who he was for our sake. In turn, we cannot be silent. Go ahead and write that name down. And during this week, what I want you to understand is that your prayer for that person draws them to God. It says in John chapter 6, verse 44, that it is only God that can draw men unto him. So if you would pray for that person, I believe that they will come here on Easter Sunday and they will come to know God. Can I get an amen? Can you help us with that? If, 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 if you can, can you just raise your invite up? Can you just raise it up? If, if you have names on these, can you just raise it up? I'm going to pray for them. And I want you to know these aren't the tickets. And if people don't have tickets, we will never turn people away. But get the tickets so we can prepare and allocate better in the services. Let's pray over these names because they need hope. Amen. You go in your prayer, I'll go in mine. Father, I pray over every name that was written down. Maybe it wasn't on an invite, but it's in a heart. Lord, I pray for every hand raised that your spirit would go even now, Father, and we would know that you're going before us and that when we speak to them, it'll be like opening a door and they would come to know you in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. amen. Who are we kidding? We are not good enough. That's why he had to come. We are no match for sin. The world doesn't need something else. The world needs Jesus revealed again. The world needs Jesus. You need more of Jesus. Ashland and Framingham needs Jesus. When I was in the military from 2000 to 2004, I was privileged by joining the search and rescue swimmer teams. It's a, it's a special forces area. It's the third hardest military training in the military. And there was something that I learned there after having done six missions that I never forgot going forward. And I remember during that, those four to six weeks of intensive high-risk training, they would always brainwash us with these things so that we would always be ready for us to always be at peak 
physical state because our ability to run, our ability to swim and deploy fast would determine if somebody was rescued underneath a helicopter that crashed in the ocean. And so they would tell us stories about how some of these swimmers then met with the families and they had to kind of say they didn't make it. And do you want that on your conscience? So run, so swim, so stay underwater for as long as you can because if you can hold your breath long enough, someone may be rescued. And so we, we went through that training, and everybody got the tattoo, so others may live. Man, that's so noble. And then first deployment, the instructor said, rule number one. I said, number one, what is all that we just learned? And he said, never deploy without a life buoy. I said, that's so contradictory. So you're asking us to be the best swimmers of all time. And then you're saying, go with a buoy? And the instructor would tell us time and time again. Even the best swimmers are no match for the ocean currents in the storms. I never forgot that. Could you stand with me this morning? I know you're good. I know you're strong. I know you've been through some things. You have your story. But listen to me. Jesus came because we are no match for sin. The first thing we do, and when I looked at this story, I saw the gospel in it right away. We are not called to save anyone. We are called to introduce Jesus. Because in that storm, people that are drowning, the first thing that they'll do is hang on to you, put you underwater so they can breathe. This is why we went through underwater training, combat training. This is why we give them a buoy. Because in moments of desperation, their survival is not based on what I can do. It's based on the capacity of that buoy to float. And it doesn't matter how big the waves are if they would just hold on to that raft, they will never sink. And I think what we need to learn this morning is this. We're not called to rescue people. We're called to... Tell them about Jesus. And if they hold on, the biggest problems in life will never sink them. Because Jesus is the Son of God. Amen. Maybe you're here today and you're thinking, what is this all about? I want you to know that the evidence and the proof of the story I told you is not in the findings. It supports and cooperates and stands up to the best critics. The evidence will not be found in contextual criticism or 5,300 copies of the Bible that was found and it's all coherent. All that will help. But let me ask you if you're here today and you're visiting or you've been here before and you have doubts. When is enough evidence? Enough evidence? The reality of God is not based on what we can dig up in the dirt. The reality of God is based on the fact that when you speak to him, he speaks back. We know he's real because you can know him. 
So with every eye closed, every head bowed, if you're here today, I'm here for you in this moment, and you've never actually accepted Jesus for the first time, I want to give you a moment. Think about that. What would your life be like if you actually said yes? And all it takes is saying yes. John 3.16 says if you would believe in him, you wouldn't die, but have everlasting life. That's eternity with God in heaven here. He loved, he gave, we believe, we receive. If that's you, I'm gonna count to three and I'm gonna give you a chance to respond. One, God loves you so much and you'll never know. Two, this is your moment of change, don't shy away. Three, if that's you, could you just put your hand up and then back down so I can acknowledge you, I see you, God bless you, I see you in the middle, I see you in the back, God bless you for that decision. God bless you for making that decision. Amen, such courage. And maybe you didn't raise your hand. That's okay. That's just our method. But we're going to pray some. I'm going to ask you to repeat it. So say this with me. The whole church. Say, Lord Jesus, I believe in you. I acknowledge you. I know you are the Son of God. And I confess that I need help. So help me now. In Jesus' name. Can we give it up for those decisions in those lives? God bless you. We'll see you next Sunday.